Well, there's a well-known proverb, well-known proverb that I'm sure uh, many of us in this, this room here watching online are familiar with. Um, it's found in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18. So the proverb goes like this, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. We've probably seen this play out in real life from time to time. Uh, a, a few years ago, there was a, uh, there's this, this clip that went viral of this UFC fight. And the fight itself lasted for maybe 20 to 30 seconds. And so as the fighters gathered centering, they touched gloves. And so the fight started. One opponent on, on one side of the ring, seemingly not really knowing where he was or, or at least what the battle was in front of him, started to want to show off his gymnastic abilities. And as soon as the fight started, he just started doing like front flips and back flips like all over the ring. And it was a, a strange thing to, to watch. The, the other fighter is standing on the other side of the ring kind of with a confused look on his face. And he's just watching this, this, this idiot just kind of flip around the, uh, the, the, the ring. It was one of the most bizarre things to watch. The the fighter over on this side was just flipping and and was doing so, I I think, because he was just filled with such arrogant confidence. I don't know, that he didn't think this other fighter was much of a threat. And and obviously, this guy is just wanting to draw attention to himself for his athleticism, I guess. I don't know what was going through his mind. But the fighter on this other side is just standing there watching this all go down. And, and you can see him. He's just standing there patiently watching, watching for his moment, his moment to strike because he obviously is seeing this guy is completely distracted and not knowing what is going on. So this guy on the one side who's flipping all around, all of a sudden does a front flip in the direction of the other fighter. As soon as he's doing a front flip toward this other fighter, the other guy takes about two or three steps in and just perfectly times a punch as the guy's flipping over right into the face. One punch, the guy is knocked out on the floor. He is knocked out one hit and the flight fight was over and the other guy just walked to his, the center and he was like, I'm done. That's it. Now, I don't like seeing people get hurt, but I have to admit <laughs> Watching that guy with such arrogant confidence, just one hit, just get leveled, was hilarious. <laughs> hilarious. Uh, but it was kind of this, this really small picture, this small picture of, of, of kind of that proverb to some, some degree. Um, what happens when, when our kind of pride, our haughtiness uh, controls us? Proverbs 16, 18, is, it's true because the more prideful we become, the more obsessed we become with our own self-worth, the more inflated our ego gets, the more self-focused we are, the more zealous we are over our image and, and our self-perception. When that, those things take place and continually build and build and build, the more erratic our actions then become in defending our sense of self-worth, um, in defending our idol, which is ourselves. And ultimately, as that proverb says, it's going to result in your demise, your ruin, your destruction, your fall, because the more that we, we pursue and are controlled by our, our pride and arrogance, uh, the more that we will stop at nothing to make sure our sense of self-worth is protected against all threats. If there was ever a biblical narrative which displays kind of the truth of Proverbs sixteen eighteen, it's the story of Abimelech's downfall. Judges 9 ends with this further decline into evil and into rebellion and into injustice. 
Not, not only does Abimelech's pride, as we'll see, and his ego lead to his ultimate demise, but even the people of Israel further turn away and, and spiral out of control as they're forgetting their God, and it results in them even going into battle against themselves. They, they turn on one another. They kill one another. It is mayhem. It is chaos. Now, one could ask as you're reading through these, these narratives here in, in Judges, even the last chapter or two, is, is where is God? Where is he in all of this? As this madness is unfolding, and, and yet what we see even in the, the, the end of Judges 9, we, we see God's hand. We see God's sovereign hand over even humanity's rebellion. What's seen is, in Judges 9 is God's desire for justice in a, in a world of injustice. Uh, what's seen in Judges 9 is God's holy indignation toward sin and toward rebellion, that God's judgment is coming upon those who have rebelled. What's ultimately seen, as we'll close this morning, is God's glory, God's glory over his creation, that nothing is hidden from a holy God. Nothing will be left unchecked. As one author said in reference to Judges 9, he said, God may be silent, but he is never absent. That is true of Judges 9. He may be silent, but he is not absent. Reading through Judges 9 may cause us to reflect on the world around us and see maybe similarities. We see in the world around us injustice, madness on a daily basis. It can cause us maybe to, to question God. It can cause us to maybe even look down on the, our noses at those who are committing these deeds, committing the chaos. Yet we should read through Judges 9, not with judgmental hearts, but really with reflective and introspective hearts, realizing just how prone we are toward idolatry and toward pride. That we share the same sinful heart that Abimelech has that the people of Israel struggled with here. We are no different. We are no better. We are what we are only because of God's grace. And we may be tempted then to even though look at the world around us and wonder, okay, where is God? Right? If he's there, if he's in his creation, over his creation, where is he? Why do these things take place in the world around us? Can he be trusted when it seems as though the, the world is just on fire? This text may cause us to, to see our weakness, our sinfulness, and, and ask, how can I trust God when I'm surrounded by injustice, but at the same time also ask, but I know he's there, so how can I, though humbly and joyfully remain under God's good reign and rule when I, when I know my heart is, is desperately desiring to be first? When I'm just a step or two away, maybe from what we see here in, in God's word, how, how do I remain steadfast in and under his good and, and, and righteous rule? I believe from this narrative, the downfall of Abimelech, the further slide into rebellion by Israel, yet at the same time seeing God's sovereign hand over it all, that we can learn to better trust a God of holy justice. God is not absent here, just as God is not absent in the world today. God is not absent in your life today. Sin will not be left unchecked. God's judgment of sinners, God's justice, as we'll see here, and that we see even in our world today, should stir our hearts. Lastly, as we'll see this morning, to worship. And seeing the wickedness and pride of Abimelech in Israel should cause us to fall on our knees and confess and repent of where our hearts want to stray. 
So because God is a God of, of justice, as we'll see, we must trust him to make right what we have made wrong. Last week, we read the first half of Judges 9. We saw how uh, this man named Abimelech, uh, a son of Gideon, came to power. And, and we saw last week that he came to power through incredibly violent means. He, he killed 70 of his brothers who he knew stood in the way. Uh, and he killed them all so he could take control, so he could be in power. It was only one brother that escaped Jotham. He, he escaped uh, Abimelech's uh, rage, and, and Jotham stands on this mountaintop after losing his entire family and seeing uh, the people of Shechem come behind and rally with Abimelech and, and give him strength and power to, to, to murder his family. And, and so Jotham, if you remember from last week, cursed Israel, cursed the people of Shechem, saying that, that justice is coming. And that in the end, he said, listen, if you are choosing evil, Evil will destroy you. Here we are now. We're picking up the text this morning in verse 22, and we're three years down the road, three years later. Now, three years may not seem like that long of a time. In fact, for us just here, it's been one week, one week since we saw what what took place in Jotham's family, and here we are next week now and to seeing the, the result of that. But three years have gone by. Now, three years, like I said, may not seem like a long time, but Put yourself in Jotham's shoes, sandals, whatever he would have been wearing. Put yourself in his place. Who, who just witnessed his entire family being executed. Three, three years removed, three years later, would, would, would seem like a long time to wait for justice, wouldn't it? I mean, don't we get, we get anxious when trials take long here in, in our world today? Like, why is it taking months and months and months when it's obvious this person's guilty? Three years removed, waiting for justice would seem... Like a long time, I'm sure Jotham during those three years maybe had moments of asking, God, where are you? Okay, you, you saw what they did. When will you act? Why are you allowing Abimelech to reign? When will you, when will you enact justice for my family? Could we not be tempted to think these things as well when, when we look at the chaos in the world around us, when we're treated unfairly, when we have to endure suffering and trouble? God, where are you? Where are you? Are you there? Why are you so slow to act, God? Maybe we don't audibly say those, those words, but surely we've thought those things from time to time. What's the hold up here, God? Bring justice to those who need it. I need justice. Act for me. The Psalms are, are filled with that, those prayers, those languages. God, act. Come to my, my rescue here. What do we do here? What do we see from the text that helps us maybe in the waiting. Let me give us one thing here to, to begin thinking through. But trust God's heart. Trust God's heart when surrounded by injustice. Trust God's heart when surrounded by injustice. Why? Why can we trust God when surrounded by injustice? Because God, as we've already said a few moments ago, though he may be silent, is never absent. God will act but the ways in which he, he acts may not always make sense to us, right? Have we, can we agree with that? That the ways often that, that God has moved and worked in our lives, sometimes we look and say, that's not how I would do it. That's different than what I was expecting. He, he's not always going to act according to our timetable, to our expectations, to what we think is right. But God will always act in one way or another. And the way in which he acts will always reveal his sovereignty over all things. That's what we begin to see in verse 23. 
Look at verse 23 again. It says, And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. Let's pause. Did we just read that right? God sent an evil spirit? This is how he's going to deal with, with injustice? By sending an evil spirit? Did we just read that correctly? Yes, we did. So what's this showing us? What's this showing you? Let me give us a couple of really quick things to think about of what I believe this is revealing. I think it's revealing that, one, God is sovereign over everything. God is sovereign over all the universe, over all creation. There is nothing outside of his control. So it reveals that. But also we're going to see that, that, that God doesn't cause evil. He's not causing evil. That's not what's taking place here when he sends an evil spirit. He's not causing evil, but... But he can use humanities, he can use human beings' evil inclinations, tendencies to bring about his will and his justice. We see that really throughout Scripture quite often. God, let's think about this, God is sovereign over his creation, over the entire universe, which means that evil forces in the world today are not more powerful than God or are not operating uh, separate from God's authority and God's control over his universe. Uh, think of a couple examples from Scripture. First chapter of Job. If you're familiar with the story of Job, Satan in Job 1 comes before God wanting to bring harm and, destru- and destruction to Job so that he will curse God. So Satan's accusation before God and, and of Job is that Job, listen, he only worships you, God, because you, you've made his life abundant. You've blessed him in such a way. So of course he's going to worship you. I guarantee you take everything away from, from him and he will curse you. So, so if, if you're familiar with Job 1, what's God do? God gives Satan permission to remove and take everything away from Job, but puts boundaries around it. You, you can take all you want, but you can't harm him. You can't touch him. So, so he gives Satan permission to, to go, and that's what Satan does. And if you're familiar with Job, Job responds in worship. He, he says, you've given, you take away, blessed be the name of the Lord. He doesn't curse his God. But the, the point I'm trying to say, because we're not going to go through the whole story of, of Job here, but the point is that Satan had to go to God and seek permission from God to do what he wanted to do. Satan has power, absolutely, but it's under the authority of God. I'll give you another example. In the book of Mark, chapter 5, Jesus is, is casting out in, in that chapter a legion of, deacon, uh, of demons, um, thousands and thousands of demons who, who see the person of Jesus Christ come running up to him in this person that they've possessed, and they fall down before Jesus and say, please, um, what do you have to do with us? Right? They, they know who Christ is, and, and they beg of him, please uh, cast us into this, this herd of nearby pigs rather than sending them into their eternal judgment, into the abyss. And what's Jesus say to this, this possessed individual that's, that's filled with this legion of demons? Listen to Mark chapter 5, verse 13. It says, so he gave them, everybody say that next word out loud, permission. He gave them permission. God is sovereign over all things. We may not understand the reasons for how or why he acts the way that he does, but we can't disagree or argue that Scripture is clear who reigns and rules. This is not a tug-of-war match going on between God and and Satan, between demonic forces and and, and, and heavenly forces. This this is not a, I wonder who's going to come out on top in this battle. 
Demonic forces in Mark 5 clearly understand and know who's in charge. They understand who is in authority. But we also see from Scripture, like like I said, even from this point here, that, that God is not causing the evil to take place here. Here in Judges 9, God is not causing Abimelech and causing the people of Shechem uh, to, to sin. He's not placing this temptation in front of them that's so desirous that they have no other choice, that they, they want to do right, but God's put this temptation in front of them that they have to do. That's not taking place here. Rather, what God is doing is using man's own sinful, uh, I used this word a moment ago, we get that from Wayne Grudem in his, uh, his systematic theology, he uses this word inclination our tendencies, our desires for sin. And God can even use that to bring about his will, his justice. James chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 says, Let no one say when he is tempted that he is, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But here we go. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. But God is so sovereign over his creation, over all things, that he can even use evil. He can even use man's desire for wickedness to bring about his will and even here bring about justice. So, so in the waiting, in the waiting, in the chaos of life, we remember God is not absent. He is in control. He is sovereign. He is working. He is good. And his heart and character is that. It is good. So it's why we can trust him in the waiting, even when we don't know what's going on. We trust his heart. The very first, um, very first funeral that I had to officiate, uh, this is 12, 13 years ago now, and I, I remember it because it was um, uh, I, I had to officiate this, I think it was on my son's first birthday, and uh, the first funeral I had to officiate was for a, a, a mother who had a stillborn child. And it was the first funeral I had to officiate, and I, I met this, this young family um, through our care ministry, um, so it was a family that was just in need and had gotten to know her and, and them, and just as a church, we were able to just kind of serve them and help them, and, and she was obviously about eight, eight, nine months pregnant, and so um, when the baby was born, stillborn, the family reached out to me and, and asked if I would officiate that funeral. And uh, obviously I said yes, but I, I was terrified. I, one, it was the first one I've ever officiated, and what do you say? What do you say to a family that just lost a, a child? And so I remember standing before this grieving family, uh, and, and they're just broken, and every one of them is, is asking probably the question we would ask in that moment, why? Like, why did this happen? And stood there and said, listen, I know that's what we're asking. I can't answer that. I don't know why. Uh, this is suffering. This is difficult. This is, this is awful, what we're having to walk through, what you're having to walk through. Um, but what we did for the next 20, 25 minutes is just say, when we don't know the why, we go to what we do know. And, and so for 20 minutes or so, we just went to Scripture after Scripture and said, here's what we know about God. He's good. He's faithful. His love is steadfast. He's near to the brokenhearted. And we just went there and just said, listen, when we don't understand the why, we go to what Scripture clearly lays out. When we, when we don't understand what's going on in our lives, in your life, in the world around us, we can still trust God's heart. He's good. He's good, and he is not absent. He is very near. So in the waiting, trust him in his goodness. But secondly, from this narrative today, 
Not only should it turn our eyes upward to a good God who, who reigns, but, but also we want to see our heart, see your heart for what it is apart from God's grace. See your heart for what it is apart from God's grace. This is where sometimes when we read Scripture, we read it um, uh, disconnected. And we say, what is wrong with these fools? And, and so we want to so often kind of read ourselves into the, the narrative. That's what I was trying to do this week as I was going through it. And as I started to see my, myself in, in this, it, it kind of just it brought a little bit of terror to me to, to realize how prone my heart is toward acts like this apart from God's grace. And we had verses 22 through 25 read this, this morning, but we're actually going to work through the remainder of chapter 9. Verses 22 through 25, though, give this, this really good summary or kind of overview of, of what the rest of the chapter uh, is, in, is going to uh, unfold. And so God sends, as we saw in verse 23, this evil spirit to stir up man's sinful hearts to, to chase and pursue what they really desire, which is control and power their pride and ego, this is very common amongst human beings. This is what we love and desire. Well, again, last week we saw Jotham pronounce his curse on Abimelech and on the people of, of Shechem who had just murdered his entire, his entire family and so that they could seize power over others. And, and so if you remember, Jotham says, listen, more or less, uh, both of you are eventually going to turn on one another because you're being led by evil. You're letting your evil desires lead you. And, and evil desires, ultimately, human beings are all about themselves, and so after a while, you're going to turn on one another. In fact, he uses this phrase that, that, that fire is going to come from the leaders of Shechem to destroy Abimelech, and, and fire is going to come from Abimelech and destroy the leaders of, of Shechem. So again, if you chase after evil, if you're led by evil, it's going to result in your ruin. So in verses 26 now through really 52, 53, 54, is, is Jotham's curse coming true? That's what we see in 26 through 52. It, and it wasn't that it was power in the curse. Don't think, whoo, man, Jotham, man, he must have had this, this incredible power. No, no, he was, he was just prophesying of what will come. This is sure to come because this is what you're being led by. But the power of what came about, because the scripture is clear, the power came from a holy God who is orchestrating all things according to the purpose of his will, a God who desired justice. So, so let me summarize kind of these verses, starting in verse 26 um, through 52. So in verse 26, another rival leader by the name of Gaal, he comes into to Shechem, and, and the people, it doesn't explain why, but they've begun to turn on Abimelech. They, they're growing dissatisfied with his leadership, and, and so now they're turning into this guy named Gaal instead of Abimelech, and they're wanting him to lead, and we need to oust Abimelech somehow. So, so the people there with Gaal, they, they kind of all get together and they kind of have this, this big party, this big get together. And just to contextualize, if you read through the text, they really just get together and start talking trash about Abimelech. So they're eating, they're drinking, they're all together and they're just, they're just trashing Abimelech. Uh, in this time, Gaal's uh, ego begins to get inflated, and he starts talking like a tough guy. In, in verse 29, he says this, that, Would that this people, people of Shechem, were under my hand? He says, Then I'd remove Abimelech. I would say to Abimelech, Increase your army and come on out. Here's what he's saying. He's saying in this group of people that are trashing Abimelech, he says, Listen, yeah, man, if Abimelech were here right now, what the floor with them. That's basically what he's saying. Now, now all of this is being said behind closed doors. 
Uh, I think he shows a little bit of cowardice, but either way, word of this, this uh, insurrection, this, this mutiny here, word gets to Abimelech that the people are turning against him and being led by this guy, Gael. So in verses 30 through 45, uh, Abimelech, instead of seeking to win back the affections of the people, the people that he said he would provide refuge for, come find refuge under my shade. Remember him saying that last week? Instead of doing that, he just hears this and instantly sets an ambush to kill and destroy every last one of them. And that's what he does. That's what verses 26 through 52 show. He rallies his supporters, sets traps outside the city gates. When opportunity strikes, he captured the city. Verse 45 says he killed the people that were in it, every one of them. Not only that, but verse 45 also ends by saying he sowed it all with salt so as he brings this entire city to, to ruin, as it's still smoking and, and, and simmering, he dumps salt all over it. Why? Why? Because he didn't want anything to ever even grow there again. He, he wanted that just be a, a, a barren wasteland, brought it to ruin, and wanted nothing to ever flourish there again. The very people that three years ago he said, come rest under my shade, and I'll give you refuge. He dumps salt all over the ground so that no one would even remember that they were there. In verse 47, he hears that, that some of the leaders of Shechem had escaped and, and who had turned on him, and they were barricading themselves in this, this strong tower. So says Abimelech, his followers, they go cut down a bunch of wood. They place it all around the tower, and they burn every last one of them. Literally, you can see in Abimelech's act toward the people of Shechem, Jotham's curse coming to fruition. Fire came from Abimelech to destroy the people he was once leading. After this, though, uh, the, the narrative continues. Abimelech's rage is intensifying even more, so he turns his attention out toward this, this other town that's nearby. Now, the text doesn't explain why he all of a sudden turned his anger toward them, but, but maybe they were colluding with him. Who knows? Maybe it's just him wanting to make a statement, but he is so consumed with his pride, his ego, that he wants to make the statement, I'm in charge. And so he attacks this other neighbor, uh, neighboring town, another tower people are hiding up in. He, he tries to do the same thing to them, burn them all alive. But this time, though, the people win. And it says that a, a certain woman who is at the top of the tower has a millstone, sees Abimelech, chucks it off the top, lands right on Abimelech's head. Verse 53 says, crushing his skull. Crushing his skull. Yet it doesn't kill him, but it's killing him. If that makes sense. Because we see in verse 54, Abimelech's last act on this earth recorded. And we see, him, see his last act, right? You, you think in a moment of, what have I done my life is coming to an end. You would think maybe there, there's confession, repentance. No, you see in verse 54 this, this preservation of his pride and his ego. Verse 54 says, Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, A woman killed him. And this young man thrust him through and he died. Verses 26 through 52 tell the gruesome story, the end of Abimelech in Israel's further downfall. It's here, though, that we get a picture of, of the human heart, I would argue, apart from God's grace. Man's sinful desires always are going to place us at the center of the universe, and that if anything is going to get in the way of that, needs to be destroyed. From verses 25 through 43, the word ambush is used five times 
five times in, in, in relation to Abimelech and, and the people of Shechem going after one another. They're constantly laying ambushes against one another. See, when our pride, when our ego, our reputation, when whatever our idol is, the idol of self is threatened, again, apart from God's grace, we will quickly turn on one another. Those that we even said we loved and cared for to defend actually what is most precious to us. It's what takes place here in Abimelech's life. Even as he's laying at the base of this tower with his skull crushed in, knowing he's dying, the only thing on his heart in that moment was his pride and his reputation. His pride, that which was most precious to him. But think about it. It was his pride which also was leading to his death. It destroyed him. The millstone didn't kill Abimelech. His pride did. Pride comes before the fall. And even, yet even at the end, he's holding on to the thing that led to his demise tightly. See, what's, what's most ugly in this scene isn't a gruesome end to his life. It's his love of self. Brothers and sisters, this is the state of humanity. This is our heart apart from God's redeeming grace. And it is ugly, isn't it? And to be honest, we, we'd probably rather not think about it. We, we don't really want to deal with our own junk in our lives. It's, it's why we really, as human beings, we, we become masters of distraction. Especially in our culture today, we have so many things that we've created that can distract us from really having to deal with how ugly our hearts can be in our pursuit of sin. And, and even as church-going people, we've gotten good. I've gotten good at making sure the outside of my life really looks good while the inside can sometimes or oftentimes be a mess. It's like if you invited people over to your home and you just shoved everything in the closet, right? And then slammed the door shut. And, and so someone comes in like, ah, man, you got your house in order. And then the door pops open and all the junk comes out. So often that's sometimes how we live our lives. We, we've learned how to kind of hide things rather than clean them up, rather than repent and put them to death. It's it's so often what we've become so good at. Now, by God's grace, through the faith in Christ, we've been given a new heart. Praise God for that. Yet we also recognize and realize that the, the remnants of our sinful flesh still remain. Yet we have a heart now that desires and pursues God. That, that did not come from us. That did not come from you. A heart that desires God. That was a gift given to us by his grace. And praise God for that. But, but even as we pursue him, we recognize that there's sinful inclinations and tendencies in me still that want to, to, to wander away from him. And so the argument that I want to lay before us, a challenge, a charge to us today from Scripture for us is rather than hiding from it, rather than learning how to better distract ourselves from the ugliness that still remains within us, let us instead own it, confess it, repent of it, and faith turn to the one who is the most beautiful and forgiving. It's cling to the cross of Christ because it's at the cross where we, where we see both the, the agony and the ugliness of sin and be, it being dealt with, but we also see the beauty of God's grace and mercy. It's there that we see the consequences of our sin which led him to his death, but it's there that we also see God's forgiveness and the freedom that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. See your heart for what it is apart from God's grace. See your sin. See your neediness. See the reason for the cross of Christ. And then as we look to God, who is good and gracious and merciful, who has dealt with sin through his son, who has dealt with injustice, we should then lastly, lastly point today, which leads us to this idea of worship. 
We should, because of all of this, worship a holy God whose glory is seen through his justice. Worship a holy God whose glory is seen through his justice. Look at the remaining verses of of Judges 9, starting in verse 55. It says, when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. It just shows even there just the, 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 the loyalty they even had to him. If he's dead, let's go home. Thus God returned, though, here's where we're focused on. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. Again, this is a gruesome scene for sure, as we've kind of already seen. Judges is a lot of those. And there's going to be several more to come. It's, though, the result of pride. This is the result of ego, the, the, result, the result of idolatry, of self. His gruesome end came, though, under the providence of a holy God who used the inclinations of sinful men. I mean, notice again what it says in verse 56 and 57. God, it says, God returned the evil of Abimelech, right? The, the evil was there. It, it said he returned the evil of the men of Shechem, used their evil to bring about on them their own ruin, which ultimately, though, resulted, and we see in this text woven throughout God's glory, God's glory being seen because of his righteous judgment and justice. He did not allow sin to go unchecked unpunished. If you've gone through our membership class before here, you know that one of the first things we talk about week one is the mission of God. What is the mission of God is revealed through scripture. And scripture is clear that the mission of God is his glory. It's his glory. It's all throughout scripture. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. Psalm 113.4, the Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Isaiah 42, verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor I praise to carve idols. Habakkuk 2, 14, one of my favorites. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God is all about his glory. All about his glory. As Christopher Morgan once wrote, trying to, as best he could, define what God's glory is. He, he said, the glory of God is the magnificence, the worth, the loveliness and grandeur of his many perfections. And yet, at the same time, so many uh, theologians say, really, it's almost impossible to define what God's glory is. As John Piper once said, he said, trying to define uh, God's glory and to explain what, what glory is, is like trying to explain and define to someone what beauty is. He says, you, you can't really define beauty, but he says, you, but you know it when you see it. You know it when you see it. And he says, you point to something beautiful and you say that, that's beauty. God's glory, though, as one author has said, is the goal of all things. God's glory is the goal of all things, which means, as we read through even this text here and this ultimate demise of Abimelech here, is that God is glorified, um, yes, in his redemption of sinners. And we sing and we praise God for his redemption, for his salvation, yes and amen, but God is and will be glorified in his justice and in his judgment of unrepenting sinners. What we see in God's handling of Abimelech and The people here should stir worship within our hearts as we see a righteous God who desires justice and who will judge sin. 
Now, if you're like, ah, man, I'm uncomfortable with that. If we're like, as human beings, we're like, we, we kind of tense up over that. Like, man, we should worship God because of his judgment, because he's just. Like, I just don't like that. I, I don't like thinking that God is glorified through justice and judgment. I don't like this idea that God is glorified with a guy getting his head crushed by a millstone. Like, what? Like, how do we reconcile that? Like, when we, when we wince over that, well, Explain to me, though, then why we, we as human beings relish the feeling that comes when justice is rolled out in, in criminal cases that we watch. Explain to me, and I was counting this the other day, why just in, uh, on my TV at home, I've got five different channels on TV that focus on law and justice. Court TV, right? True crime TV, et cetera, et cetera. Why are there hundreds and hundreds of true crime podcasts that we eat up? Why does the nation get captivated by real court cases and just love it when a person is found guilty? We love to hear that guilty uh, verdict when, when someone has been committed, uh, has committed a, this heinous crime. It's because we love justice when someone else is receiving it, don't we? We love justice when it's someone else. But we, when we know we're guilty, ah, we love mercy. We love mercy. And so this might make us tense because we know deep down within our heart and our soul, that before a holy God, we stand guilty and rightfully deserving of justice. I think that's maybe why it bothers us to hear that God is going to be glorified through his justice. We know that we deserve to be on the receiving end of it. But if we can understand and relish the feeling that comes when justice is rolled out on a deserving criminal, how much more should we understand the justice that sinful humanity is deserving of because we have committed treason against a holy God? We, we should worship God because he does not allow injustice to remain unchecked. And it should stir our hearts to fear him, but to adore him and to love him and to rest fully in the finished work of Christ. God's justice should drive us to the cross. Drive us to the cross. The, the one uh, who hung on the cross, Jesus Christ, who bore the punishment for our sin, who absorbed the wrath of God, for sinful humanity. Yes, God is a God of justice, but herein lies our hope. Through Christ, who became sin, who knew no sin, God's justice then for repenting sinners was satisfied. Christ's death brought God the Father glory because in Christ's death, we see God's desire for justice satisfied. Sin was dealt with and God's glory was seen in redeeming guilty sinners through no work of their own, but through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Again, God's glory is the goal of all things. He is going to be glorified in his redemption, and he is going to be glorified in his judgment. The cross shows us, though, that we can trust God's heart. The cross shows us our need for grace and the fallenness of our human hearts. The cross then should cause us to ultimately worship a God who is glorious and who reigns over all. But God's grace, let us see that in Judges 9 through this downfall of Abimelech. Let's pray together.